Well, it's good to see everybody here this morning. Um, I'll be speaking from Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. The only reason I chose this verse is because a couple months ago I uh, led uh, Will's Bible study and while well, he was at G3, so I had some notes on it already, so that's the passage that we're going to be looking at today. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Why don't we stand together as we read from God's Word? So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, I come before your throne of grace this morning. I ask for humility, that you would forgive my pride, Help us to understand what our sins cost your son on the cross. I seem to be constantly filled with the sin, Lord, that drove in your nails. In my fallen nature, I cannot seem to go two seconds without sinning against you. Yet now I have the task to somewhat teach your pure and holier words to these people. Help me, Lord, as our focus today will be on humility, that you will cause me to examine my heart once more. As I have been forced to do preparing this. And help each one of us to examine our hearts according to the light of your word. Amen. You may be seated. So we'll be looking today at our example found in Christ. To help us understand these verses a little bit better, we need to know the background and the context. Philippians was one of the four prison epistles that Paul wrote during his imprisonment in Rome after his third missionary journey, the other three being Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians. They were all written much at the same time. The church in Philippi was planted by Paul during his second missionary journey around A.D. 4950. So the church was planted during his second missionary journey. The book of Philippians was written after his third missionary journey, about approximately 10 to 12 years later. It was in Philippi where Paul gained his first European convert and where he was jailed for exorcism. And he also led a Philippian jailer to a profession of faith. This is all recorded in Acts chapter 16, verses 12 to 40. In Acts chapter 21, following his third missionary journey, Paul returned to Jerusalem despite the warnings of persecutions that awaited him there in Jerusalem. Then while he was there in Jerusalem, he was falsely accused of allowing Gentiles to enter the temple courts. He was sent to Caesarea on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to stand before the governor Felix in Acts chapter 24. Felix found no fault in him, but Felix refused to release Paul due to the demands of the people and also because Paul refused to pay a bribe. Then in Acts chapter 25, Paul appeals to Caesar, so after two years in prison in Caesarea, he was then sent to Rome for another two years in prison. And this is recorded in Acts 27 to 28. 
throughout Paul's ministry, he suffered greatly. He was whipped, he was beaten, he was hunted by assassins, he was imprisoned, he was stoned, and left for dead. Due to his continual persecutions by both Jews and Gentiles, Paul was often depressed and even despairing. Yes, the man who wrote a third of the New Testament often felt depressed and despairing. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 to 9. Second Corinthians 1, verses 8 to 9 reads, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on our own selves, but on God who raises the dead. Often these trials and these tribulations, they often come because... It is meant to make us not rely on our own self because God does, does give us more than what we can bear so that we will learn to rely on him. And in Philippians 2.27, we also read, Indeed, he, being Epaphroditus, was ill. He was near to death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon my sorrow. We hear, we we seem to understand that Paul already had sorrow, and the death of Epaphroditus would only heap more sorrow upon his sorrow. Also, numerous times in Philippians, Paul comments that death would be a welcome relief for him. That is the theology that is based in the book of Philippians, is based on the context of suffering, and is experienced and endured by Paul and the Philippians. Paul's theology encu encouraged him that God was working for good, even though his heart was heavy and his sorrow at times was overwhelming. With a context of suffering in mind, let's read Philippians 2, 1 to 11 once again. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is, also, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The three points I want to take, I want to make in this sermon is, number one, the command to humility, obedience, and unity. Number two, Christ, our example in, in humility, and God's response to true, true humility. So the command to humility and obedience and unity. Verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The word if here does not mean that Paul was unsure that there actually existed some form of encouragement in Christ. That as if there may or may not be encouragement found there. Paul is asking the Philippians to reflect on themselves. If the encouragement, love, affection, or sympathy in Christ exists in their midst, in them or among them, he's asking them to reflect upon them. In their midst, there needs to be affection and there needs to be sympathy for each other. There needs to be compassion and patience for each other. There needs to be kindness and there needs to be meekness and there needs to be humility. The Christian must be clothed in these things. We know that Paul does not in fact doubt that there is encouragement, love, participation in the spirit, affection and sympathy found in Christ and in Christ alone. We know this in part because Paul would just finish describing Christ as his source in chapter 1. And now he's exhorting the Philippians 
to also find their joy in Christ. A couple verses further, he also points to Christ as the example in verse 5. Christ is the source, and Christ is the example. Let's look at a couple verses in chapter 1 that shows us that how Paul is building upon Christ. So in chapter 1, verse 6, we see here that, that Paul has full confidence in Christ. And he builds upon Christ. 1 verse 6, I am sure of this. He who began a good work will bring it to completion. Verse 18, Christ is preached, and in that I rejoice. Verse 20, Christ will be honored whether by life or by death. Verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Verse 23, Paul's desire was to depart and to be with Christ. Verse 26, in me you have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. And verse 27, live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Verse 29, granted to you, has been granted to you to believe and to suffer for his sake. So in 2 verse 1, the phrase participation in the Spirit could also be rendered as fellowship that is produced by the Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 11, reads, Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss, and all the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So we see these, these, uh, these gifts or these fruits of the Spirit. They come through a fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Something that, is part that you participate in the Holy Spirit and that is produced by the Holy Spirit. So here in Paul's final greeting to the Corinthians, he refers to humble Christian fellowship through servitude of one another. And he also speaks of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. This true and proper fellowship is produced by the Holy Spirit. When we look at verses, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, we see that there are three types of unity on display. There is creedal unity, there is functional unity, and there is ontological unity. Before there can be a creedal or a functional unity, there must be ontological unity. So uh, to explain this, creed means beliefs. You've maybe all heard of confessions and creeds, or maybe the Apostles' Creed. Creed simply means belief. It's also where the term creedal baptism comes from, which is another way of saying believer's baptism. So creeds means belief, so that would be a unity in belief. There must be ontological unity. Ontological simply means our nature or our being, so our our oneness in Christ or being in Christ Jesus as believers, that is an ontological unity. It is who we are as, as, as believers. Then there's functional unity. It is a, a unity in function or practice, how you live or how we live our Christian faith, how we live out our Christian life in servitude of one another or even in the community. So there's creedal, functional, and ontological unity. To use some examples, if you have functional unity with a denomination, even if there isn't creedal unity, so if you work together with them, even if necessarily you don't agree on all points of doctrine, you can still work together, you can still serve together with them. There can still be functional unity. You can feed the poor together with them. You can do kingdom work with them. You can serve each other. You can care for each other. You can pray for each other. All these things are functional unity. And in such cases, there would be a functional unity and there would be an ontological unity because they are both believers in Christ and they're serving one another. They're caring for one another. But there's not necessarily a creedal unity there. Because of doctrinal differences. And you could also have, for example, you could have two people who agree doctrinally and both are saved, but have difficulty working together for one reason or another. Then you would have creedal unity, you would have ontological unity, but you would not have functional unity. But if we look at these verses, we see that there should be all three types of unity present within a group of believers that get together on a Sunday morning within a church. 
Of course, there's a little bit of nuance within the definition of each type of unity, but within the group of a specific body of believers, there should be all three present. Starting at verse 1, we see it must obviously start with ontological unity. There must be genuinely born-again believers who are in Christ and are participating in the same spirit. In verse 2 and continuing to verse 3, we see this should be of the same mind, which is creedal unity. And they should have functional unity and how they live out their Christian life in love and serving one another. These three types of unity will build a strong church. Very often it's that's because there are so many different denominations in the world. There are over 60,000 denominations in the world. And very often that is why, because there are maybe only two out of three types of unity. And it's not always bad. But within a church, in order to build a strong church, within that group of believers, there needs to be all three of those unities present in order to, to, to have a strong church. So complete my joy, he says in verse 2, but being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So if encouragement, love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy is found in the Philippian church, then Paul's joy would be complete if they were also of the same mind. The Greek term for same mind here carries the implication of thinking the same way. Again, creedal unity. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Probably the greatest way we prove to others we don't count others more significant than ourselves is in our speech, how we talk about others. Every day we tear down others through our speech and in our conversations. In Romans chapter 3, Paul quotes Psalm verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 9, 140, verse 3, and 10, verse 7, when he writes, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. He's not just talking about being a potty mouth here. He's describing me and you. Richard Phillips writes, Our speech reeks of the grave. We are such masters of deception and falsity that Christians who have truly learned to speak in love have entered a high realm of sanctification. Like the sacks of venom behind the fangs of a snake, so is our speech. Our depravity pours out of our mouths like sewage from a pipe. A story is told of a seminary class who was given an assignment to not sin with their tongues for an entire week and then write a paper about it. Most did not last the first afternoon, and every, sp every paper spoke of dismal failure. And these students were in seminary for pastoral training. Does your pride allow you to look your spouse in the eye and tell them you are not my enemy? What about others, our brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we able to look each other in the eye, to look others in the eye, and say you are not my enemy? We should have no enemies. If they are a, a fellow believer in Christ, they are not the enemy. If they are unbelievers, they are also not the enemy. There are enemies of the gospel. But if they are unbelievers, they are not our enemy. They are the mission field. Chapter 2, verse 14, Paul contrasts pride with humility when he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. You see, pride competes, but humility serves. Augustine says this, for those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing, humility is the second thing, and humility is the third thing. James 1.18 leaves no room for pride in ourselves. When he says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth 
that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So of his own will, it was of God's will that he did, not us, but he did. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be the first fruits of his creatures. It is nothing of us, but it is all him to be his creatures. A false humility is nothing more than a mask for pride. Outwardly, we seem humble and we perform good deeds for others. Yet inwardly, we are seeking the praise of men. It is a false humility that masks our pride. Outwardly, we say nice things about someone, yet inwardly, we hope people will think, what a nice person I am to say such nice things about someone else. Outwardly, we may give biblical counsel to a struggling brother, yet inwardly, we pat ourselves on the back for being so wise. Outwardly, we open our homes and hearts to hurting people, yet inwardly, we hope we w- they will tell others about what wonderful things I have done for them. Or we may dress a certain way to appear more humble, but in reality it is merely a cover for an inward proud heart. And this is all false humility. Humility, rather than just mask our pride, should permeate our lives. False humility will attract attention to itself. True humility is unconscious to itself. Can we help and serve others without patting ourselves on the back? A quote from Table Talk magazine reads, true, hum- true humility comes by cultivating the mind that seeks only to serve others without either rec- recognition or reward. Again, true humility comes by cultivating the mind that seeks only to serve others without either recognition or reward. Humility begins with a deep sense of our own sinfulness. Let's turn to Luke chapter 18, verse 9. And notice in verse 9. Notice the, the heart condition of the Pharisee. There are two phrases in verse 9 that, that tell us his heart condition. The first phrase, or the story to whom he told this parable to. And he, he told this parable to those who, were str- who obviously were full of pride as an example. And these people trusted in themselves. Notice that phrase. He tr- they trusted in themselves. And they treated others with contempt. Let's read 9 to 13. We can go all the way to 14, I guess. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In this parable, it was a tax collector who had the true humility. He recognized his sinfulness and he came broken before the Lord. The Pharisee in his pride had a false humility and considered himself better than a tax collector. Let's go back to Philippians. Now let's, t- let's tie chapter 2 verses 1 to 4. Let's tie it back into chapter 1 a little bit. In verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And also in verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your, progr- for your progress and joy in the faith. And in verse 27, only let, this manner, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
So we see in verse 25 that Paul is convinced that he won't die. But that he will remain to see the Philippians' progress in the faith. Then in verse 27, he commands them to let their life be worthy of the gospel. And by living worthy of the gospel, they will also stand firm in one spirit and one mind. And they will strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. So the progress from verse 25 and the living worthy of the gospel in verse 27 that Paul talks about there are now explained in more detail in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Have you ever considered what it means to live worthy of the gospel? Have you ever considered, have you ever considered how that might even be possible? In chapter 1, verse 6, Paul is sure that it is Christ who will bring this to completion. It is Christ who began it, and it is Christ who will finish it. Now in verses 1 to 4, Paul gives a non-exhaustive list of Christian duties and behaviors that are worthy of the gospel. Verse 2, be of same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord and one mind. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, don't look to your own interest. Look to the interests of others. When we fail in these areas, we are neglecting to humble ourselves before God. We aren't looking to Christ our example, as our example, which brings us to point number two. Christ our example in humility. So again, how is this possible? Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus. By looking to Jesus, not only were the Philippians to have the same mind among themselves, verse 2, but they were to have the mind of Christ. Paul now shifts his audience's attention from themselves to the example of Christ. The only way we can live worthy of the gospel is by looking to Christ the one who is worthy of the gospel, and the one who actually lived the gospel by becoming sin on our behalf and thereby making us worthy of the gospel so that we can actually live worthy of the gospel. Again, it is Christ who we look to who is worthy of the gospel and the only one who actually lived the gospel by becoming sin on our behalf and thereby making us worthy of the gospel so that we can actually live worthy of the gospel, not because of us, but only because of him. That is why Jesus is now the example in verses 6 to 11. Because Paul is sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Because he is sure that it is Jesus who will bring it to completion, that is why he also now points to Jesus and why he uses Jesus as the example. Notice how in verse 5, it is a connective verse. Verse 1 to 4 focuses on the Christian behavior. Verse 5 connects verses 1 to 4, with verses 6 to 11. And he shifts the focus how this behavior is possible by looking to Jesus, our example of humility, in verses 6 to 11. In verse 5, the Nazbi uses the word attitude instead of mind. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ. Have the mind of Christ. Have the attitude of Christ. We need to learn from the example that Christ has left us. To look to Christ refers to giving ourselves completely to him and reflecting on what he has done, what he did on the cross and how he lived. We can find instructions in the rest of Scripture as well to learn from Christ and to follow his example. Scripture, all throughout Scripture we see this, how we are always to look to Christ. Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. John 13, 15. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. 1 Peter 2, 21. 1 Peter 2, 21. For this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So we see Christ is our example. Christ is the one whom we need to learn from. Not only is he our Savior, he is our example. 
Philippians 2.6 again reads, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The word grasp here means to lay hold of something or to seize something by robbery, which is how the New King James reads. He did not count it robbery. Jesus did not count equality with God as something that could be taken, something that could be grasped or laid hold of by robbery. It couldn't be stolen. It is God's and it is God's alone. Jesus' attitude was not to cling to his position as God, but to empty himself by taking the form of a servant. This is in stark contrast then to Adam in the garden or Satan as an angelic being in heaven, who were both so filled with pride and both tried to grasp or take hold of the form of God and become like God. The first Adam was in human form, wanted to become like God. The last Adam, who was in the form of God, humbled himself and took on human form. It is the ultimate form of pride to desire to be like God. Yet Jesus was fully and he was completely God. Colossians 2.9 reads, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of who God is dwells in bodily form. Colossians 1.19, For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We see Jesus was not only partially God, not 50% God, he was fully God. In him, the fullness of the deity of the Godhead was pleased to dwell. Jesus had power to forgive sins. And Mark 2, verses 5 to 11 read, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to, your, to, say to the paralytic, the paralytic your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. We see here in verse 7 that the scribes rightly note that God, only God himself has the power to forgive sins. Just because the Bible says something somewhere doesn't mean it's necessarily true. There are places where the scribes and the Pharisees, because they weren't believers, where they say something that is not necessarily true, right? So we need to actually find the context and see is, is what he's saying here actually true. And we know from the, from the Old Testament that it is only God who is able to forgive sins. One example I often think of is uh, Gamaliel's advice. He said if Paul and the apostles, if they were truly of God, then they would be able to continue. But if they were not of God, then the thing would, they, their ministry would just kind of disappear which is bad advice because if that is the case, then why are there still Mormons and Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses and anybody else, right? Because we know they're not of Christ, but yet why are they still there? So, so that's something to, to, to take note of. But we see here the scribes rightly note in verse 7 that only God had the power to forgive sins. And in verse 10, Jesus says that he has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And if only God can forgive sins and Jesus does in fact forgive sins, then it stands to reason he is truly God. Not only did Jesus have the power to forgive sins, but he also had power over creation. Matthew 8, 26. He said to them, being the disciples, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. Jesus had power over sickness and death. Luke 4, 40. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had, been, who, who had any were sick, who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Jesus had power over demons, Matthew 8.32. And he said to them, the demons, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Jesus had power over death, Mark 5.41. Taking up the 
taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. As God, Jesus was sovereign, Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. As God, Jesus was eternal, John, 1 John 1, verses 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. As God, Jesus was immutable, which means he was unchanging. Hebrews 13.8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, and today, and forever. As God, Jesus Christ was omniscient, uh, which means all-knowing. Colossians 2, verses 2 to 3, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and of understanding and the fullness and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As God, Jesus was sinless. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21 As God, Jesus was holy. Acts 13.14-15 or 3.14-15 but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. As God, Jesus was truth. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Philippians 2, 7. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What does it mean? For the Holy Son of God, the creator of the universe, the one who knits together every human being in the womb, to now be himself born in the likeness of man. The term emptied himself does not mean Jesus removed his deity, as we just read, in order to become man. He was still fully God while being fully man. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant to be born in the likeness of man. Here we had our perfect, we had our righteous, holy, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God wrapped up in the form, wrapped up in the form of degrading, sinful, imperfect, wicked man. Romans chapter 8 verse 3 if you want to turn there. Romans chapter 8 verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. So again we have our holy and our perfect and our righteous God who humbled himself to be wrapped up in the form of sin. To be wrapped up in the form of sinful, imperfect, wicked man. Jesus himself obviously was still perfect. We know that. But he was in the likeness now of, those, of these creatures. That is how he emptied himself. And that is humility. Instead of taking the step up, instead of thinking that being in the form of God was something that could be taken, or instead of using that as an advantage or as a benefit, he stooped down from being God to being man. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He came as a baby. His diapers needed to be changed. He needed to be fed and washed by His mother. He took the form of a servant and washed the feet of others. Think about that example of a servant. He washed the feet of men who sinned against God, who sinned against Him. He washed their feet. He didn't just washed the feet of his friends. He washed the feet of, yeah, they were his friends, the disciples. But being a sinful man, they also sinned against him. Can we follow that example? I can say for myself it will be very difficult. Second Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, 
so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He came down so that you could be lifted up. He became poor so that you might become rich. Jesus was 100% God. He was 100% man. He was fully God and he was fully man. It is not a contradiction. It is a mystery, but it's not a contradiction. Another way of saying it might be that that might make more sense is that he was truly God and he was truly man. This doctrine of Jesus becoming the God-man is called the incarnation. We saw in verse 6 how Jesus was truly God. Now let's look at a couple of examples how he was truly man. Luke 2, verse 40. He grew and he became strong. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. He slept when he was tired in Mark 4.38. But he was in the stern of the ship, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him. And he said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So he was sleeping when he was tired there. Jesus, when he didn't have food, became hungry. Luke 4.2. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Jesus became weary after a journey. Jacob and, and John 4, 6. Jacob well, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Jesus wept when he was grieved. In John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus had a physical body even after his resurrection. In Luke 24, 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Even after he was raised from the dead, Jesus had a physical body. He was not a ghost or a spirit. He had a glorified body. Philippians 2 verse 8. Being found in human form, he, f he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In verse 7. Jesus emptied himself by stooping from God to humanity. Now he humbles himself even further by stooping from humanity to death. A quote from Donald McLeod from Table Talk magazine says, What did the angels think of it all? One day they blinked in astonishment as they saw their great creator in a manger in Bethlehem. They must have found the spectacle incomprehensible. Then as the days and years moved on, they saw a drama unfold which must have overloaded every circuit in their computers. One day word came that their Lord was in Gethsemane, and one of them had been sent to strengthen him. The angels needed to strengthen their, their Lord. Hours later, there came even more astonishing news. He was bleeding on the cross of Calvary. That surely was the bottom, the very worst. But no, the next thing was the Father had forsaken him. The God whose whole impulse it was to wash away the tears from the eyes of his people. Not washing away the tears of his own son. That's how it was from beginning to end of the earthly life. Down. The tremendous step from throne to stable. And then the incredible journey from the stable to the cross. And beyond it, the journey to the cross itself. From the immolation to the dereliction. The angels must have been saying, will this never end? How low is he going to go? How low does he have to go? Jesus' obedience was perfect. He was perfectly willing to do what the Father wanted him to do. In the garden, Jesus prayed, Not my will, but your will be done. It was, though, it was through his obedience that we could become righteous. Romans 5.19, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read, For our sake he became sin who knew no sin. It is a great transaction of the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of being saved, that when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, that he takes our sins and he puts them on Christ, and there Christ paid for them on the cross. And then he takes the righteousness of God and puts it on us so that when we approach the throne of grace, God does not see our sin, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ upon us. That is grace. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 
For our sake does not mean that we deserved it. But it means that we were so depraved that it took the incomprehensible sacrifice of the very Son of God himself to save us. In other words, his death was our fault. But for our sake also means he loved us enough to die in this humility. Even though our sin against him required it. Isaiah says God rejoices in his children. Paul writes in Ephesians, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. This love he purposefully and deliberately set upon his children from eternity. It was not a random love. It was not a reckless love. It was a love filled with intention. It was a love perfectly guided. A love not based on anything we have done, but a love according to his will. Because Jesus was obedient, he willfully kept going further and further down this ladder of shame. From his heavenly throne, from birth to betrayal, being judged by human sinners. Think about that for a second. Here the perfect and sinless Son of God was being judged by a depraved sinner who had rejected him. He was being judged by a sinner. And Jesus accepted that judgment. He received that judgment. That role will one day be reversed. The flogging, the crucifixion, the abandonment, the death, the burial, he just kept going down. Yet Jesus remained perfectly obedient through it all. It wasn't just a random act of fate or something outside of God's control, but he was delivered up perfectly according to God's perfect plan. Let's turn to Acts 4.27. For truly in this city, there were to get gather together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand, being God's hand, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And God and Jesus was perfectly obedient. This was all a plan from before eternity, from from eternity. A plan to redeem a people for himself. When Jesus died, he didn't just die so as to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. He died a death of judgment. He died paying for the sins of God's children. He died the second death. It was from this death of judgment that Jesus was resurrected and exalted. It was this death of judgment where we can be saved from. If Jesus only died to be present from the body and absent from the body and present with the Lord, maybe we'd only be saved from our first death, but it is the second death that we are saved from. Point number three, God's response to true humility. Verse nine, therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have seen in verses 1 to 4 our command to true humility, obedience, and unity. We see in verse 5 how it points to Christ as our example in this. And we see in verses 6 to 8 how Christ is the example and how he humbled himself and was obedient. Now in verse 9 to 11 we see God's response to true humility. Let's read some verses. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 to 7. 1 Peter 5, 5 to 7. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Remember, in the beginning, how we talked about how the Christian needs to be clothed in this. Clothe yourselves, all of you, not just the youngers, all of you with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, 
casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. James 4.10. James 4.10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. A commentator here mentions that humble yourselves or to be humbled before the Lord means having the Lord in mind in whatever we do and wherever we go. Jesus was the greatest example of this, of always having the Lord's will in mind in everything he did. In John 6:38, we see that, for I, we read, that, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Luke 18, 14. I tell, you th- I tell you, this man went down to see his house justified rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Remember this parable, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Who was it that recognized his own sin instead of looking at others with contempt? Who found true humility before the Lord and realized they could not trust in themselves? Who was exalted by God? It was the tax collector. In Jesus' example of true humility, we notice that true humility glorifies the Father, not ourselves, and it accomplishes the work that the Father has given us to do for His glory. John 17, verses 1 to 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. These verses also speak to the deity of Jesus, since the Old Testament also tells us that God will not give his glory to another. So that, in verse 10, Philippians 2, verse 10, now we note the reason the Son will be exalted, so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This does not mean that someday everyone will confess unto salvation. We know from Jesus' own words that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, to him will be saved. But this confession will also be in judgment. This confession will be too late. This confession will be an acknowledgement that Jesus Christ truly is the preeminent king. And unbelievers will then realize their folly and not humbling themselves before the Lord like the tax collector. Instead of humbling themselves before the Lord, they spent a lifetime proudly trying to exalt themselves and will then be faced with the reality that their own exaltation of self could never save. Only humbly submitting to God and allowing Him to exalt you will save. Beat upon your breast as the tax collector did and cry out to God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you struggle with pride? Look to Christ as the example. How he took the form of man who was degraded and depraved. So when others looked at him, his outward appearance did not reflect who he truly was, but reflected the likeness of sinful man. Isaiah tells us he was not beautiful to behold. Meditate upon Christ and what he did for you. Put aside your pride. Let's put aside our pride. Let's put aside our contempt for others. Let's put aside trusting in ourselves. Let's put aside this mask of false humility that only attempts to mask our pride. Let's look to Christ. Let's pray.